Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of March, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Well, where, where do we start? It, there's so much information coming in and a big thank you to all our viewers and listeners that are giving really high quality information to the UK and that's been quite noticeable over the last couple of months. Um, right, so we'll, we'll start off with, uh, with the budget of course because Rishi is speaking in Parliament as we speak uh, and uh, well he's uh, talking about more help for workers, money to help locals buy their boozer. He's talking about uh, an MBA-style MBA management training scheme for firms. He's talking about cash for cricket and football. He's talking about money for the arts, support for businesses to reopen, money for vaccinations, money for everything. 95% mortgages coming back. Uh, that'll please everybody. Uh, and, well, an elite visa for uh, highly skilled workers, apparently, uh, and more money. But uh, money, money seems to be all about spending money. But let's uh, have a look at, of course, we don't know what the tax implications are yet because uh, he's still talking, but uh, let's have a look at what the, the situation is with respect to the number of people furloughed at the moment. This is the latest uh, from HMRC. Uh, and uh, so currently the peak, well, the peak was somewhere around 9 million. It's currently apparently 4.7 million people on the furlough scheme. This is to be extended until September, apparently. Uh, but that the uh, um, this is not... The whole story because uh, others are saying that in fact this figure is more like uh, six million uh, but uh, if we look at it slightly differently and assume that the 4.7 million uh, is correct then the number that are currently receiving support are that 4.7 plus another 2.2 million that are self-employed uh, so that's a total of 6.9 million uh, receiving support at the moment uh, and allegedly until september now uh, but there's another 100, sorry, another 1.7 million who didn't qualify for the self-employed support. Um, so, Alex, uh, before we look at the what the Institute for Fiscal Studies has been saying, that's that's pretty significant. That's not 6.9 million. That's approaching uh, 9 million people that potentially come September. And he keeps pushing the can down the road. But at what point can he continue to do that? And at one point, are they just going to go for universal basic income, which we know is a policy that's uh, waiting in the wings? Well, certainly, Mike, UBI is something that has been pushed by some of the continental countries, more usually in the Germanic zone, uh, often at city level. Uh, but Switzerland and Finland have seen proposals at more or less official national level. Um, it's certainly gaining a groundswell. And if we are in the realm of 9 million people receiving effectively a life support for their livelihoods, uh, what proportion of British breadwinners is that? I mean, the, the breadwinning adults in our population are probably de facto around 70 million these days because of undercounting of immigration. Um, the breadwinners are probably not far in excess of 20, 25 million. So we're talking potentially nearly half of the breadwinners. Uh, on income support now. Uh, yes, uh, that's pretty significant when we take into account, as we will in a second, the amount of money that uh, the country owes, apparently. I, I just added, and many people in the chat box, of course, picking up on Rishi being connected into very big money through his hedge funds and I think linked in through family connections to billionaire wealth 
uh, in India. So can this man really understand the suffering of ordinary people in UK? One wonders. Uh, not really. Uh, but uh, let's have a look at what the Institute for Fiscal Studies has to say. Of course, this think tank gives uh, their opinion every time there's a budget day. They said we don't want uh, unnecessary hardship or the loss of viable businesses and what we hope will be the last few months of the pandemic. It also, it's also important that they don't go on for too long. If people are supported in jobs that are effectively defunct, uh, that will slow down the adjustment and recovery to come. So there's a number of uh, things to unpick from this. First of all, this term viable businesses and this term defunct business jobs that are defunct uh, adjustment and recovery to come. So uh, there is a hint in this one little paragraph of so much of the uh, Great Reset policy that the World Economic Forum is uh, is pushing so hard, plus the uh, New Green Deal. Um, so uh, it's all in that one uh, that one little paragraph there. But uh, let's see what Rishi had to say this morning or what he's saying. Uh, first, we'll continue doing whatever it takes to support the British people and businesses through this moment of crisis. Really? Okay, well, the IFS went on to say, and that brings us to the deficit, the debt, uh, and what to do about it. Once again, there have been a host of stories about possible tax rises to pay for the huge scale of borrowing we've seen this year. In fact, we don't need to start to pay down the debt accumulated this year. That burden can be shared reasonably across many generations. So their message is keep it for the children uh, and so on, uh, because uh, that's their problem. Um, and uh, well, where does that take us then? Um, that takes us to the levels of borrowing, £34 billion uh, in December. That's the highest since 2009, I believe. Uh, and of course, if we look at the uh, national debt clock, it's rapidly, rapidly approaching £2.5 trillion at this stage. Uh, and Alex, as you said there, with almost half of the, pop of the working age population uh, on government support, uh, it's going to take more than generations to pay that off uh, because there isn't the tax revenue uh, available to pay it back. It is unpayable and therefore uh, if uh, we're getting to a point where it is unpayable, well, we are absolutely heading towards a policy like UBI because there's no alternative. Yes, and at this point we can invoke the wisdom of previous cycles where something similar has happened, like the late Roman Empire, debasing of the currency and increasing totalitarianism. What happens is people often linked by some religious or philosophical worldview or political sympathies, at least, decide to get together and form networks of people who will shop from each other. It's the kind of positive equivalent of the Kauf nicht bei Juden policy in the Third Reich, you know, that if those find people, people find that they are shunned as the modern day equivalent of the Juden whom you should not buy from, well, do business with each other. And in fact, uh, I was speaking, uh, well, a private conversation, but I don't mind uh, discussing this bit of it, uh, to the channel owner, a very good young man called Seb, yesterday, the channel owner of Not the BBC on YouTube. People will find it easily. It's the icon of uh, a three by three black and white square saying Not the BBC. And uh, Seb, the channel owner, was picking my brains on what to do to fight what you're describing. And I said, well, historically, and to this day, the first step is to find is to set up effectively as a badge of honor, directories of businesses that have been uh, decreed unviable or climate unfriendly or whatever it may be, um, and start buying from each other. And in time, you'll find two economies with their own currencies. Yeah, I think the other thing we should add, of course, is that the sums of money talked about are simply created 
from nothing by the international banking cartel. So a lot of questions to be asked there about what this money is that the government is supposedly accepting and foisting as debt on future generations. That may well change in the not too distant future well, as, as they start to roll out these uh, central bank digital currencies. But we have been reporting on that and will continue to do so. Now here is the next thing, Brian, because uh, this is the health care leaders, HSJ, sorry, for healthcare leaders this is the HSJ, the Health Service Journal exclusive NHS in London asked to plan for positive possible COVID surge surge later in 2021. They're saying they've been told to prepare for another surge in coronavirus uh, starting in the autumn. Uh, this is leaked documents, apparently, which the HSJ has got hold of. Uh, it's been given to NHS trusts in London, but not to other parts of the country. Um, and uh, it says the purpose of the critical care de-surge plan is to ensure that the bed base can expand safely in the event of a third COVID surge and or major incident event. So that's going on in the background. Uh, and if it wasn't for an exclusive in HSJ, nobody would know about it. But in the meantime, the mainstream press pushing the, the notion that uh, the lockdown is going to ease faster because the vaccine is such a success. Uh, well, I'm not certain that we can have this both ways. Either the vaccine is a success and we can come out of lockdown, then why, if that's the case, would there be uh, uh, fear of another surge in the winter? which requires uh, preparation by the NHS. It does seem a little strange. Well, unless the objective is that you want the uh, restrictions to keep going, Mike, and then everything they do makes total sense. So Indeed. I, I tend to go for that explanation. Um, thanks to the uh, viewer that passed uh, this along to me. Uh, this is from People Management. Lorry driver sacked for refusing to wear face mask was not unfairly dismissed, landmark ruling shows. Um, so this uh, hearing was in the East London Hearing Centre, uh, involved uh, an employee of Kent Foods Limited, uh, and he had been delivering or uh, had been uh, collecting stuff from Tate and Lyle. Um, and uh, well, he decided he didn't want to wear a mask in the cab of his truck. Uh, but when he entered the Tate and Lyle premises, they asked him to put a mask on. He said it was, wasn't uh, reasonable that he actually didn't uh, need to do that. There was no requirement from his employer or from the law to do so. Uh, and so he was banned from the Tate and Lyle site. He was subsequently sacked. Um, uh, but the judge said that uh, it was fair because his continued insistence that he had done nothing wrong and his lack of remorse uh, made the employer's decision to dismiss a fair and reasonable response. Um, so uh, uh, Tate and Lyle managers had said that with no mask on, all the droplets coming from his mouth as he spoke were going to land on people's faces due to the elevated position in his cab. Um, so that was why they were banning him from the site. Uh, and uh, well, Alex, I'm just interested to get your thoughts on that. Now, some people are suggesting that this isn't going to make huge, a huge difference in terms of setting precedent or so on. But of course, uh, this feeds into the no jab, no job narrative. And of course, for those who are unfamiliar with the legal system, certainly in the age of EUification of the previously pure common law of England and Wales, what we have is lower courts well known on the continent as tribunals, not always called tribunals in England and Wales or in Scotland, but that's what we have to do with courts that shouldn't exist historically in common law. And that's the kind of level that this judgment comes out at. The same happens when justices of the peace or magistrates, and the big secret about them is that they're executive officers, they're not part of the judiciary proper, 
uh, magistrates are often making such uh, decisions as well. Later in this news, we will cover a case where a higher court struck it out. So the remedy often, if you can get an honest uh, hearing in a higher court, is to say, actually, uh, in this case, you know, a single judge or in other cases, a, a bench of magistrates was making up what they wanted the law to be, what they fancied it should be on the hoof, using pretty much just, just social conventions to tick people off, to chide them uh, on the basis of being stubborn and not going along with the, 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 the prevailing sentiment. It's, it's very nannying stuff, but it's not English law. Yeah, indeed. Um, so sticking with masks then, let's uh, put this on screen. This is uh, Ipsley Church of England uh, Middle School. Uh, thanks to I me. Mean, there are quite a lot of emails about this, actually. Um, so they're proud to support uh, Children's Mental Health Week 2021. Uh, but it was uh, this section that everybody was uh, talking about. What will school look like in March? And particularly this uh, particular comment, uh, pupils in year seven are strongly encouraged to wear face coverings around the school and in lessons. This face covering should be plain black, grey, blue or white. Pupils with a medical exemption will be issued with a small badge which they should wear to school each day, displayed visibly on their blazer or jumper. So uh, the response from uh, the public, Alex, uh, very much uh, as, would, as you would expect, uh, that this is uh, the uh, thin end of the wedge and so on. Well, I should read out a paragraph from a Guardian article on similar theme about whether should primary school children should be obliged to wear masks as part as for those of watching abroad who don't understand the significance of the colours, basically the idea of the muted colours is that the mask is part of the uniform, which of course many other countries don't have, school uniform. Well, the paragraph here quotes Susan Mitchie, uh, well known to UK column co coverage, a member of the notorious SPIB, the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behavioural Science, a subcommittee of SAGE, so the nudge unit within SAGE, as it were. And Susan Mitchie of SBIB says that the benefits of getting primary school children to wear masks is that regardless of what little degree of transmission is occurring in those age groups, uh, it could help normalise the practice. Young children wearing masks may make their families more likely to accept masks. I think you can see there what's going on. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, very cynical, but we're back on the applied psychology. Once again, Alex, everything comes back to the fact that the political agenda is being enforced by applied psychology, which is what the behavioural insights team was designed to do, of course. Um, Alex, uh, we've got a, a Gavi whistleblower has uh, arrived on the scene. Yes, and the material that Dr. Astrid Stuckelberger, who has uh, a past mainly in Switzerland and also in Norway, the material she's presenting to uh, the Stiftung Corona Ausschuss, the extra parliamentary inquiry into COVID uh, run by Dr. Rainer Fulmich and other German lawyers, now by now familiar to our viewers, this material is not entirely new. And uh, I've given one example of where you can find uh, that testimony in full, it's three quarters of an hour, and unusually it's in English, so people can understand it directly. Um, it's also mirrored to many separate small channels on BitChute, so it's not going to disappear anytime soon. But she is talking about Gavi. For those who don't know how to use the UK Column search function, go to ukcolumn.org, uh, hit the magnifying glass and always look up terms of interest there. In this particular case, the word Gavi, the acronym G-A-V-I, and you will find that Vanessa Beely's previous coverage of this global alliance of vaccine uh, I don't know what the I stands for anymore, but it's basically the big, big vax um, consortium, as it were. Uh, people can't read this, but if they want to look at that on screen, uh, they will see that uh, Dr. Stuckelberger's LinkedIn profile is second to none. She is uh, a senior trainer and educator at world level. 
uh, on public health and international health uh, with many honours and awards and many consultancy gigs for the World Health Organization and other branches of the UN such as the International Labour Organization and the various development arms of the UN and in the in the decade of the 2000s she was happily going around the world training the UN world regions you know like East Asia or the Pacific or whatever on international health doctrines but here in a very useful summary produced by I think a very worthy small channel here on YouTube that's picked up this content in English I've done the translation of this is what's being said so the Ingeborg Schirmer Gruber channel uh, has put this summary out in German which I've translated of what was being said I've also listened to the testimony Dr. Stuckelberger was prohibited from teaching her old material on international health after 2013 she says the World Health Organization retains absolute powers to amend the new international health regulations we're now on iteration three the only countries that had objections or in international law they're called reservations about this commitment was the USA and Iran interestingly enough two ends of the spectrum that believe in sovereignty Dr. Stuckelberger goes on to say that Bill Gates requested that his organization Gavi shall we say the big money uh, the sub-state or, uh, or outside the state money involved in vaccination. Gavi should have membership of the World Health Organization Executive Board in 2017. And as one of the lawyers listening to Dr. Stuckelberger remarks, uh, ironically, this turned Gavi and, uh, basically into Bill Gates' stan. And this allowed, it de facto, it never went in through the proper international law channels, but Dr. Stuckelberger says that in practice, you now have three parties signing WHO contracts and treaties with individual member states. And the third party is Bill Gates, who's basically given himself uh, the equivalent of country status. What else does she say? She says that Gavi has a grade of diplomatic immunity in Switzerland, where she has spent most of her career, uh, that is higher than most diplomatic bodies themselves. Most other bodies, the standard grade of, of, of immunity you get in international law is qualified diplomatic immunity, meaning if you murder someone, it will be lifted. Gavi has absolute diplomatic immunity for its premises and computers. And as there is some discussion in English that people can listen to in the testimony between Dr. Stuckelberger and the very well-educated and, and, and well-enunciated German lawyers, this puts Gavi on a par with banks such as, and they name them, the Bank for International Settlements, Switzerland-based, and the Frankfurt Germany-based European Central Bank. And the, the lawyers around the table say, yes, I'm aware of these unusual exceptions that mean that even if there is egregious uh, probable cause for a warrant to go and find out where a grave crime has been committed, the, the banks in question, international banks and Gavi, cannot be searched. Now, she, the, the closing part of her evidence is interesting. Uh, Dr. Stuckelberger says that the World Health Organization, and again, this isn't new to people who watch channels like us, the definitions of pandemic that used to have three strands of definition was reduced to one uh, in the H5N1 panic, the Tamiflu panic of 2009, and also covered by others, but enunciated well by Dr. Stuckelberger, herd immunity has also been devalued in meaning. Uh, it's enough now for a disease to be uh, around the world, found around the world, and then Dr. Tedros uh, calls a pandemic and states that have signed up to the WHO way of doing things uh, with Bill Gates in the background are obliged to bow down and say that that makes a pandemic. Finally, in closing, a shocker that she comes out with is that the WHO at this moment is officially, but, but quietly, cautioning against the use of PCR tests as indications of infection, even though it is promoting their use with much razzmatazz for COVID testing. So uh, I don't know how much of that would strike you and Brian as new, but it's interesting that it's come out in a single testimony like this. Uh, and, and from uh, clearly a very significant person.
Yes, in, indeed, it's uh, you know, a grade of person that hasn't said these things before. So uh, we can also go on to find that Dr. Filmich himself, and this is the, uh, his, his legal practice in Germany, uh, he's put out a German-speaking newsletter um, from the 17th of February giving an update. German readers can go to that, but it has been helpfully and accurately translated by uh, a couple of sites, including the one I'm putting on screen now, Principia Scientific International. Um, they are some kind of religious or philosophical group, but they don't seem to have put any spin on their translation. And what I've put this on screen because it highlights properly that uh, Dr. Filmic has come out with the big one. He said a couple of weeks ago in mid-February that uh, the lawyers working on behalf of him are looking to implement Nuremberg-style trials uh, for all those involved in deliberate abuses of the pandemic. Uh, and in doing so, he has quoted actually Dr. Vernon Coleman uh, of Britain. So there is cross-fertilization going on there. To round up events in the German-speaking world, I have previously mentioned the very compelling channel Planet Lockdown with very high-quality interviews. They found that they've had been having YouTube strikes, so they're putting the teasers on YouTube and the main content on other platforms like Library, LBRY.TV. And this one is a must for people to go and listen to. It's only three quarters of an hour. Wolfgang Wodarg, full interview one, Planet Lockdown. Uh, because Dr. Wodarg, who is in the same level of, of seniority as Dr. Filmich really, and they're all friends at that level, uh, is a senior Bundes ex-Bundestag member of parliament uh, who actually got very high up in the Council of Europe. He's also into, uh, voiced scepticism in the past about how the Council of Europe and the EU tackle Russia. So he's an all-round sceptic and well worth listening to. Um, it's uh, speaking of the Council of Europe and, and Russia, uh, it's interesting that more and more Eastern European countries are turning to Russia to get uh, uh, vaccine. Um, Poland has gone to China to get theirs because they, of course, hate Russia so much that they wouldn't go near it, uh, no matter what the situation. Um, but uh, but the, you know, the, the, Europe, the EU blaming the UK for their shortage, I don't think, uh, I'm not certain that anybody should be terribly concerned about it, but the, but the, uh, the, the politicians at least are. Uh, and uh, they're blaming the UK for this because we're apparently hoarding it all. But of course, the reason that the UK has bought up so many uh, doses is so that we can get them into Africa. It does seem so, doesn't it, Mike? And further down that central European belt of countries, uh, Hungary, although it's uh, signed a contract with Russia for the Sputnik V vaccine uh, and has been beating the likes of Germany and Austria with its rollout because of that, there's more trust in that vaccine, um, has actually seen that the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has taken a Chinese-made vaccine, not even the Sputnik, which has raised eyebrows. And the next country down, Romania, the Prime Minister uh, Chitsu there has been forced onto the defensive to say that the European Commission, despite getting a battering from the Germans on this uh, over uh, Mrs. von der Leyen's policy, uh, he said that the European Commission was absolutely right because smaller countries uh, would not have got the vaccine otherwise. So and he's actually uh, in advance of many other countries like the Netherlands and Germany in proportion of vaccinated citizens now. Uh, so it seems that wherever uh, there has been a fairly successful rollout where it's gone according to plan, uh, the leaders of those countries are wheeled out to say this has been a great success. Yes. Uh, well, here in the UK, the uh, the UK government has clearly decided that the optics of having uh, the vaccine task force as part of the uh, Department for Business, um, don't, that doesn't look so good. So they've decided to reorganise things and the vaccine task force has now moved uh, uh, into the uh, Department of Health and Social Care. Um, uh, Anton LaVey, uh, otherwise known as Nadim Zahawi, will remain in his role as uh, Minister for Vaccines. 
Um, he was, took that job in December, of course. He's going to stay in that role. Um, and uh, uh, so, as, I, as we just mentioned, they are also making the point that they have... Uh, uh, bought up so many doses, uh, so they can get, give that, uh, give those to the uh, uh, to, to the organisations that are rolling out uh, vaccinations in third world countries and so on. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's no longer a business proposition uh, for the UK government. They feel that it needs to be moved back, moved into the Department for Health. Keep moving it around, keep blurring it from the general public is uh, what I think goes on, Mike. Um, well, we've heard a lot of very serious things about uh, the so-called pandemic and vaccines. Uh, let's get on to the BBC, five billion pounds worth of uh, pure propaganda machine. First, it was Shawadi Wadi, and now it is Dolly Parton. It's me. I'm finally going to get my vaccine. I'm so excited. I've been waiting a while. I'm old enough to get it and I'm smart enough to get it. So I'm very happy that I'm going to get my Moderna shot today. And I wanted to tell everybody that you should get out there and do it too. I even changed one of my songs to fit the occasion. It goes, <clears throat> vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. <laughs> I know I'm trying to be funny now, but I'm dead serious about the vaccine. I think we all want to get back to normal, whatever that is. And that would be a great shot in the arm, wouldn't it? If we could get back to that. But anyhow, I just wanted to encourage everybody because the sooner we get to feeling better, the sooner we are going to get back to being normal. So I just want to say to all of you cowards out there, don't be such a chicken squat. Get out there and get shot. Well, there we are. Uh, I could tell by the expressions on a few faces around me here in the studio that uh, people were reacting to that utterly appalling piece by Dolly Parton. Many people laugh at this. They regard it as a joke. They regard it as the BBC being silly. But of course, what the BBC is doing is trying to sway people of a certain era who can remember Dolly Parton's uh, singing efforts. Uh, to take her advice to take the vaccine. So this is very dangerous manipulation of the public mind on the back of a five billion pound propaganda machine. But I just wanted to make sure that people understood what she had to say. So let's dissect what came out in that short piece. Uh, well, of course, it's all about her. Whoa, hey, it's me. Uh, she's very excited to get her vaccine. She's been waiting a while. She's old enough to get it, certainly is. She's smart enough to get it. Well, we could discuss that. But essentially, um, does she understand that the vaccine programme has special risks to elderly people, people in her age bracket? Does she understand the risks? I don't think so. But of course, she's not going to push that across to the public. She's simply there on behalf of the BBC to sell vaccines. Um, so she's not smart. And the other thing, of course, we have talked about is that the British government tried to get a policy not to resuscitate people with learning difficulties. So to be very precise about this, if you're not very smart, the British government was looking that you died off under the pandemic because you weren't going to be resuscitated. But uh, Dolly Parton, of course, knows nothing about this. Uh, she says she's going to get her Moderna shot today and she's going to tell everybody that we should get that shot as well. Well, the first thing to say is, what does Dolly 
Parton know about vaccines and why should we pay attention to her? Well, of course we shouldn't. Uh, then the little song came out um, and uh, I find it very interesting. She says, because once you're dead, that's a bit too late. And she emphasized the word dead and then she chuckled. So this is all a bit of a joke to her. Uh, so she's pushing out the fear of death. That's what this clip is about. And she clearly finds what she's doing amusing. So I think this is pretty sickening. Uh, she says she's dead serious. That word was emphasised. If you listen to the clip again, she's dead serious about the vaccine. And we all want to get back to normal, whatever that is. And that would be a great shot in the arm, wouldn't it? So she's unclear about what normal life is and spreads the idea that we can only get to some form of normality if we are vaccinated. So, of course, that is complete spin and propaganda. Uh, I just wanted to encourage everyone because the sooner we get the feeling uh, we get to feeling better, the sooner we are going to get back to being normal. So what is she saying? She's spinning the truth here to suggest that most people have been feeling ill. Well, the reality is, of course, that the overwhelming majority have never felt unwell at all in the whole of this pandemic. So if we analyse this clip, it is about uh, information which is clearly untrue and designed to affect the way that people think. So I just want to say to you cowards out there, don't be such a chicken squat. Get, get out there and get your shot. So this is pretty insulting to the public. If you have caution about the vaccine, uh, she's calling you a coward. Uh, she doesn't want to talk about the risk. And then she's comparing people who've got uh, concerns about the vaccines to hen squatting in submission to a rooster. That's what the chicken squat is about. But uh, we'll end it with this because this is Dolly Parton and she was singing. I'll ask uh, Alex to comment about this. We can't sing in the churches because singing spreads diseases. But this was Dolly Parton singing in the BBC clip. But when she gets her vaccine, miraculously, she's in a mask uh, and she's certainly uh, in a submissive pose to the vaccine and of course this isn't the BBC this is real people have put this complete nonsense uh, on the BBC's channel so just reminds people to think about the people responsible uh, Tim Davey here uh, we've got Charlotte Moore at £370,000 she's responsible and we've got Francesca Unsworth so if you understand why we're picking this up and why this is so important to pick the BBC up on this type of stuff, um, it's the people that you want to be going for, not the BBC. It's the people responsible. Um, Alex, uh, what's, what's going on in Utrecht? Yes, this is the province rather than the city of Utrecht. And just to the east is a fairly mid-sized city uh, where I had my first Dutch job, actually, the city of Amersfoort. Uh, and you can see pictured here a care home for people with dementia and they started their coronavirus vaccine rollout in that care home on the 30th of January. Two weeks later, patients were, uh, the way that the Dutch report phrases it in this local report is still dying, but it looks like there were uh, more deaths than previously due to, uh, well, they were logged as uh, COVID-19 deaths. And uh, another report from the same RTV Utrecht uh, quotes the uh, bereaved son of one of the uh, ladies with dementia that died. And you know, one feels very sorry for him that his position on this is, if my mother had got the jab just a wee bit sooner, she would still be with us. But it is yet another, not proof, but correlation of uh, 
vaccines coming into care homes and as you pointed out with respect to Scottish data very uh, thoroughly uh, recently uh, that's uh, that's when deaths at least do not fall off they either plateau or go up in Spain Informacion.es is reporting that hospital bed occupancy for the whole of Spain is 30 and a half percent and in the community of Valencia, a self-governing region in the eastern seaboard of Spain, the Spanish Levant, um, they are reporting a 10% occupant occupancy of intensive care beds. Uh, thank you to a UK expat viewer in Spain for spotting that. And the following piece from Periódico El Pacifico, uh, the uh, gentleman in charge of health emergency responses in the dedicated centre in Spain for that purpose, Fernando Simón, has given uh, a press conference reported here uh, frankly admitting that deaths logged as COVID-19 in Spain uh, cover a multitude of actual pathologies and quote we do not actually know and have no way of telling which of these deaths were with COVID-19 and which were from and of course the El Pacifico report editorializes that and says so actually uh, all these um, uh, effects which, or decisions which have promoted death from other physical and mental causes uh, are culpable and that's editorializing on top and before we leave Dolly Parton entirely I'd point out that she was speaking in front of a backdrop of Vanderbilt Health. Vanderbilt is uh, a complex it started with being a, a magnate's estate down there the Vanderbilt estate East Tennessee where she's from and upstate North Carolina just over the state line and then it became a, a university and then latterly a major hospital and medical industrial complex basically uh, without meaning to pun it's a foreign body down there. Those people uh, down in East Tennessee, and she's built her whole career on that, are sort of, you know, uh, reliable down-home types uh, with a strong faith in Providence and in taking care of their own health. And Vanderbilt is very much a kind of Yankee import, at least that's how the old Southerners would think of it. And there she is, you know, preening on behalf of, shall we say, the local face of, of international uh, medical industrial complex. Not at all what uh, old-fashioned Tennesseans would do. So it rather gives the light to her whole career-long image. Uh, and we, we should probably say the article said she'd put in a million dollars to uh, help the vaccine uh, uh, be given. I'm not sure whether that was to a pharmaceutical company or one of the organisations you're talking about, but um, she's got that sort of money to uh, give away, a million dollars. Um, last week we were talking about the uh, potential uh, legal or the potential criminalization of anybody that was uh, uh, questioning anything uh, to do with the official narrative over COVID. And uh, well, the British Medical Journal, I think this is from the mid-January, mid or sorry, mid-February, uh, was uh, had this headline, should spreading anti-vaccine misinformation be criminalized? And they, they sort of do a, 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 a joint uh, article here with someone who is uh, proposing this this idea and someone who's opposing it. Uh, but nonetheless, this is another uh, mainstream outlet uh, pushing the idea that misinformation, so-called misinformation should be criminalized. Um, so I just wanted to highlight, because uh, the timing is quite interesting, this article that we published uh, just late last night uh, called Hate Creep uh, by Ian Davis on the UK Column website. He begins by talking about uh, Bellingcat open, openly uh, advocating for censorship of the internet, Bellingcat not actually calling for criminalization of these uh, narratives, but as we were reporting last week, uh, some people are. And this idea of hateful extremism being linked to so-called far-right extremism, um, which is all quite interesting, Alex, because uh, the news today uh, is that uh, a COVID test center in the Netherlands has been blown up. Police suspect a pipe bomb. So here we have another mainstream headline 
reinforcing this notion that anybody that's uh, questioning the government narrative on this stuff um, would would be viewed as not only a right-wing extremist, but increasingly a terrorist? Yes, and the Dutch are blessedly spared from this, you know, through uh, the waves of terrorism that hit most Western European countries for various reasons through the 70s, 80s, 90s. The Dutch were spared. They haven't had um, a successful or, or uh, lethal incidence of confirmed uh, Islamist terrorism. There have been occasion occasional uh, horrors like tram shootings, but they have been blamed on individual mental disturbances. Uh, but you know, the, the idea that a pipe bomb should hit a small Dutch town, Boven Castle, just down the road actually from the naval base where Brian used to serve, a very quiet flower growing area in the, the top of North Holland, um, that, that's really unprecedented to the Dutch. The Minister of Health, Hugo de Jonge, previously responsible for rolling out the Scottish named person policy in the Netherlands, uh, has said he, very, he had a very interesting choice of words this morning. He said those who attacked this uh, test centre was krankzinnig, which is out of their mind or, or psychologically disturbed. Uh, so it isn't actually the first time that a, a, a COVID test centre has been attacked in the very Christian town of Urk, which was a former isolated island now connected to the mainland. Uh, there was a setting on fire of a test centre recently. Uh, so, you know, we, we are at some point along the line, it becomes less credible that these are genuine, uh, spontaneous uh, acts of rage. I don't think that uh, most people in a small Dutch town would know how to even go about finding how to make a pipe bomb. It's not that they're incapable, it's just that this is a much more peaceful society than most of Western Europe. And it stretches credulity just that bit more uh, that this was a, a genuine uh, right wing extremist or whatever the, the doctrine is now. Uh, yes, indeed. But I think this, uh, Alex, is in just to make the general point, this is a pretty dangerous direction uh, that society seems to be heading in. Um, the suggestion that anybody that criticizes anything uh, or, or comments on it or questions it even um, is going to be labeled uh, in this way. And not only it's not only demonization now, but potentially criminalization. Yes, because um, the, the, the objectors so far have been anthroposophists, so they've had a long-term objection to uh, vaccines, conservative Protestants and uh, New Age health types, basically a coalition of these people, very much like Germany. Um, and now we see them being picked off one by one. And you could you almost argue that there's a geographical aspect to where the test centres are going up in smoke. Uh, or at least uh, that, that attempts are made to, to that end, that each of these groups which are strong in a particular geographical area are going to be blamed and uh, sidelined together or worse. Yes. Uh, okay, well, let's, uh, let's come back to the UK then. And uh, what's the CPS uh, up to with respect to coronavirus cases in, in the courts? This is, this is the state de facto monopoly prosecutor for England and Wales, the Crown Prosecution Service, uh, which has only existed since the 1980s. It doesn't have the total monopoly of Scotland's Crown Office that's relevant to the Sturgeon and Salmond affair, but de facto it does. And they have published, uh, and it's been picked up by several uh, legal practices and mainstream publications actually, uh, the month of January uh, figures for uh, prosecutions under the Coronavirus Act, the notoriously tyrannical and hastily drafted and wide-ranging uh, regulations of last year that were put into statute. Let's see what happens to the 14 cases that the Crown Prosecution Service attempts to, to prosecute for breaches of the Coronavirus Act during the month of January for England and Wales. Of the 14, we have 10 withdrawn, three returns to court, one administration finalised, zero found not guilty and zero found guilty. Why? 
because none of them made, made it to court. They all got thrown out. 100% of the England and Wales uh, cases brought under the, Crown, uh, brought under the Coronavirus Act in January were found to be unlawfully brought. Okay, and so, uh, well, Gazette here, the Law Gazette, sorry, um, saying civil liberties groups need to, uh, are encouraging the government to replace this dangerous coronavirus act. Yes, the Law Society Gazette, so the publication of the um, uh, England and Wales Lawyers um, uh, Professional Association, effectively, uh, notes that Liberty, which has become less reliable in recent years, but used to be a good old-fashioned campaigner, called the National Council on Civil Liberties, uh, is actually uh, doing what lobby groups often do these days and drafting an alternative bill, uh, if, if only to shame uh, Parliament and the government for having passed the 80-page draconian act that it actually did. Uh, the one that Liberty has come up with would, uh, you know, for those who believe in the dangers of coronavirus in the mainstream way, uh, would uh, allay those concerns about interactions in society without the heavy-handedness. And uh, one legal practice, uh, Garden Court Chambers, has noted that uh, in South Wales, an administrative court, in yet another of these continental-style lower courts that are coming in, has done the right thing for once, which is rarer at lower court level, and it has overturned a conviction for refusing to provide a name and address in relation to a suspected breach of the coronavirus regulations. Viewers will recall that a year ago, Wales had more stringent and also equally non-statutory-based um, coronavirus regulations than the other UK nations. And in April last year, uh, a gentleman, uh, well, there's the write-up you can put on screen while we talk, um, a gentleman um, named uh, Mr. Neal, with an E on the end, N-E-A-L-E, -E, uh, was having a friend's car tested at a garage, what we call an MOT in Britain, the roadworthiness test, and uh, was approached by a non-sworn assistant sort of pseudo-police person called a PCSO these days and the police community support officer said why are you out here give me your name and address so that my constable senior colleague can issue you with a, a non-fine known as a fixed penalty notice an FPN and Mr Neil said there's no reason for me to give you my name and address uh, this was in the southeast Wales city of Newport uh, this was actually um, taken to court and the finding was uh, that it was wrong uh, of the magistrates who heard the case first to think that this was an exception to the valid case law of 1966. Now that case law is absolutely crucial if people want to remember it and quote it calmly and respectfully to police officers, uh, police constables I should say, if they are questioned as to who they are and what their business is. Uh, I know from very senior uh, or very experienced UK column researchers that this does work if you are calm and respectful about it. The thing to quote is Rice versus Connolly 1966. That was the case, Rice versus Connolly 1966, uh, which the Administrative Court in South Wales has now found does apply in this case as well, despite what the magistrates thought about there being compelling new reasons to force people to speak. They still don't have reasons to, force to, to, to be forced to speak. There is a very important right to silence in common law, and in the jurisdiction of England and Wales, the prevailing case law, despite coronavirus regulations, remains Rice versus Connolly 1966. There is no reason for a policeman or woman to expect you to give your name or address or interact with them verbally in any other way, unless they have a suspicion of an offence. Um, Alex, um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I think also important to say on that Rice versus Connolly that uh, you can interpret it that due to the fact we are policed by consent, there is no onus on people to help the police. Um, although giving name is a uh, um, 
uh, giving name uh, if there's reason for that is part of that but this is to do with policing by consent it absolutely is because uh, in most countries of the world with civil law ideas the police uniform is the state and the state says who are you and you must obey the order uh, in the common law tradition to this day at least the theory of it and the higher courts will sometimes maintain it as in this case uh, is that a policeman despite the uniform is simply you or me performing the common law duties of any citizen but paid to do it full time and on that basis if um, I were to bump into a random uh, man or woman in civilian clothing um, and with no weaponry on them uh, who said what is your business here and who are you I would be within my rights to tell them to uh, to go and do one in any whatever range of civility I wanted and this applies to the police as well that's the substance of Rice versus Connolly yeah excellent thank you uh, well we've got another video clip here of a gentleman speaking on behalf of NH NHS England uh, Vinda Walker and I want to say thank you to the black and Asian community because uh, clearly they are extremely concerned about the drive uh, for vaccines and uh, many of them are challenging the government policy on this and uh, one particular gentleman uh, gave us uh, pointed us at this clip in order that we could hear exactly what was being said effectively about vaccine trials so short clip uh, please listen carefully to what this gentleman says thank you so the first thing i'd say and you can tell this from the pictures uh, that uh, we've seen on our television screens and in our newspapers from vaccine centers today there is a huge amount uh, of acceptance of the vaccine from people that are being offered it. And of course, our focus at the moment, up until February the 15th, is to make sure that the vaccine is offered to people who are in the most at-risk groups. So there's a real sense of positivity in the vaccine centres and a real sense of excitement. I had somebody uh, that I uh, saw having their vaccine the other day, uh, and they said to me afterwards, they said, thank you, doctor, you're going to give me my life back. So there's a real sense of hope. Now, of course, we do have communities uh, who do have entirely legitimate and understandable concerns about the vaccine. So we do know, for example, that in some of our uh, Asian communities, uh, in some of our black communities, there are long-standing concerns that actually go back generations because of the history, uh, you know, in the way that people were brought up by their grandparents who were told by their grandparents that experiments were done uh, uh, you know, in the early part of the last century, uh, that unethical experiments were done, you know, way back in the 60s. I am convinced as a doctor, having looked at all of the research, looked at the processes that we have through the Medicines Health Regulatory Authority, this is a safe and effective vaccine. The things that happened historically in the past have not happened now. We have good research evidence, and I would urge people who are offered the vaccine to come together. We are here and we will be absolutely tireless in working with our communities, working with those who've got concerns, working with faith leaders, community leaders, colleagues in local government to make sure that we will answer any question that anybody has and any concern that anyone in, anybody has to encourage people to come forward and take up their appointment. Ben, thank you for that. I was just going to say that's a really fa fascinating admission. I know you're going to come on to that in a second, yeah. but, but I'm just going to make the point, Brian, that every time there's been commentary in the media about uh, so-called hesitancy in the black and ethnic minority, uh, they, this has just been put out as a statement of fact. There's, there's hesitancy there yeah. and no explanation for why that is. Are Indeed. we starting to get a clue? 
Well, I think, uh, I think this was a very significant uh, admission, and this is why it's been picked up in the black and Asian communities. Uh, we're going to have a little look at this uh, gentleman and who he, who he actually is, uh, but then let's look at the substance of what he's talking about, which is those unethical experiments, which he says he's looked at all the evidence, and there's no problem, Mike. There's no nothing to worry about. So let's just have a look. Here he is. The first place I found him was on Celine. Pi. So I suppose that he's done extremely well. Here he is, Dr. Vin Dewaka, NHS England. Um, you can go to that site to find out a little bit about him. But I was just fascinated that when you went looking for this spokesman, uh, you found a, a Celeb Pi celebrity. LinkedIn was much more interesting because we got the regional medical director of NHS England and NHS Improvement and then we start to find out about him. He's uh, worked um, in um, uh, Children's Hospital to, um, Birmingham, Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children and then it's leadership roles. Everything is leadership. Uh, apparently a system leader and advocate for patients at local regional and national level very quickly, Alex, because I'm keeping an eye on the time here. But I always find it interesting when somebody's acting as a, a system leader and an advocate. Um, this doesn't seem to be about treating people who are ill and need medical assistance. The idea of an advocate is something that's happened in the NGO, in the charity world. It's speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves because they're disadvantaged in various ways. So there's an element of paternalism right there, isn't there? That, the, that If the patients could only enunciate their thoughts, they would choose me to do it. And that is fundamentally incongruent with the idea of being a system leader because the system is not the patient's. Uh, the system's not the patient and we're going to see in a minute does he speak up for uh, some of the patients well that's questionable um, but it says here able to create and deliver a compelling vision of the future and the possibilities it can bring for patients staff and services so this is a man living in utopia isn't it i can sell you a story that in the future it will be better the fact that you're all dying now is not a, is not in that story because my story is in the future. This comes into part of our debate about the psychological attack on the UK, um, Alex. Yes, actually, it's, um, you know, it's often called vision casting in, in the wappy churches. Uh, but it, the, all of these things come back to sort of, you know, uh, the NLP environment, California, the 1970s, you know, trying to sell your people a vision for the future. And increasingly that in the civil service, especially in the devolved administrations, Scotland and Wales taking the lead, that is now being pushed as what leadership is. It's taking your people with you, persuading them that there will be sunlit uplands tomorrow if they just bite the bullet today and head into the utopia that's to come. Well, there was more of it. I'll put this up on screen quickly so people can see. This is all from LinkedIn. Leadership in national and regional strategy, relationship building between organisations, medical engagement and leadership innovation, development, uh, developing organisational culture. And there's the critical service transformation. This is taking the NHS and leading it into the new world. Now, of course, what is this really about? Well, what he was trying to deflect from was this type of stuff. So there's a report from Los Angeles Times uh, talking about the Tuskegee syphilis study. Uh, what was this about? Well, it was utterly disgusting, I think is the right word, that black men who had syphilis uh, believed they were being treated, but actually they were part of an experiment where they were being watched as that uh, 
disease took over their lives. So they were callously used as the lab rats um, for that. And as a result in this particular area of America, as the mayor says, a trust in medicine, especially when the conversation is beginning with the federal government, is almost a non-starter here. And he went on to say the trust in the government to do the right thing has long been broken. So, all right, this is America. But if we just have a little look on Wikipedia, we can see fights are in the firing line uh, for pushing a drug into Nigeria where there was problems. Then we can see experiments in the time of HIV and AIDS. Uh, we can see some really, really nasty stuff in South Africa to do with forced sexual reassignment, forced contraception, sterilization experiments. But we're led to believe that uh, our doctor has, has looked into all this stuff and he's quite happy that it isn't happening now. This is the BBC attempting to uh, deflect reasonable questioning of the vaccine. So COVID vaccines, misleading claims targeting ethnic minorities, says that there is, of course, no evidence of any unethical practice in any of the vaccine trials. Well, I think the reason for that is because the BBC hasn't done any research into no. the dangers. Well, actually not. I think it's much more likely because there's actually the vaccine companies haven't produced proper reports on the trials. Oh, well, in that case, Mike, I'm going to say the BBC, of course, should have this as a major headline, yes, they but should, they yes. haven't. Uh, but the BBC says, says the teams behind the research say they've ensured a diverse range of trial participants. To take the example of Pfizer trial in the US, 10% were black, 13% Hispanic, 6% Asian, 1.3. So what is the BBC doing without any proper investigative journalism? It simply uh, defends the vaccine companies. And this is their spokesman, Dr. Winston Morgan from the University of East London. He says, while it's important to acknowledge unethical experiments on black people to ensure those in powers don't let it happen again, using these examples to deter people from taking the coronavirus vaccine is exploitative. I rather felt that this gentleman was letting down the back black community because uh, surely he should be saying to ensure it doesn't happen again we need to be rigorous in questioning what's happening with the vaccine trials but he doesn't do that he goes on to say trying to compare what happened then to what's happening now is wrong and I would say the exact opposite we need absolutely to question what's happening now as a result of that and what has been going on? Well, even the BBC was forced to put up this report where two French doctors were accused of racism after suggesting that trials should be pushed into Africa. Uh, if I can be provocative, shouldn't we be doing this study in Africa where there are no masks, no treatment, no resuscitation? Now, uh, there, there was a statement that this had been taken out of context, but we can see over many years a very uh, uh, evident keenness to do medical experiments uh, in Africa, where, of course, the average person, we could say, is more naive than they might be in the Western world. But the BBC reports the damage. So this is a trial where this gentleman, Rob Oldfield, uh, was being given TGN 1412. And this was manipulating the immune system. And essentially, um, Rob himself and another five men ended up in, in intensive uh, care for a week. And they had to spend three weeks in hospital as a result of a drug trial by a German company. 
And uh, thank you on Monday, Mike, because you put up the fact that this very brave gentleman, Derek Bai, had died. Um, Derek campaigning for over 40 years for the truth to come out of his uh, daughter, Helena Bai. This was part of our report where we put part of a pathetic report by the BBC about what, what had really happened. Because not only was this uh, little girl killed by the drug Epilim, Sopium Valparate, um, uh, the family then discovered that her body parts had been taken and dispersed around the country. Well, has the BBC investigated this properly? No. Uh, here's a recent article, re re sorry, reasonably recent article, 2013, from the Daily Mail. Uh, Epilim, the drug that's harmed more children than thalidomide. How many children are we talking about? 30, about 37,000 so far. And this is from that uh, Daily Mail article. Researchers found that one in three of the children born to mothers taking epilim has learning difficulties, low IQ and types of autism. And uh, that story is still to be fully told. But of course, the BBC doesn't want to tell it. No, uh, no. We were supposed to do this at the halfway point. <laughs> we're not doing very well today but uh, in getting through all the material. But if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, uh, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and also please uh, share our material that are on the various platforms. Uh, and I'd like to thank you very much for everybody that's doing that. Now, Alex, let's quickly move on to the other uh, big story of today, which, of course, is uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, and the fact that she's been giving evidence. Uh, have you been have you been listening to what she was saying this morning? I have been following it with bated breath. It was just getting to the first sticky bit as we had to go on air, actually. Uh, she was being pressed by the members of the Fabiani Committee of the Scottish Parliament uh, on why it is that her civil service underlings, as described in detail by Alex Salmond in his written testimony, had gone to Police Scotland saying, would you mind awfully taking the heat off us? This is a, a surmise now, but uh, that was the thinking. Would, would Police Scotland take the heat off us in our obviously doomed to failure attempt to get Alex Salmond internally, because he took them to judicial review and they knew they were going to lose, the Scottish Government knew. Um, would Police Scotland then open the criminal case to overshadow this? And of course, his argument, borne out by Sturgeon's testimony today, is that the Scottish Government was just buying time in a, what they knew would be a, a doomed judicial review process and spinning their lawyers along is the accusation now, uh, knowing that if they could just string it out long enough, the criminal case would take, all, uh, uh, take over, there would be more press interest and they, they, they thought they could rely on the jury to convict on at least one charge out of a sense that anything else would be, uh, would be too lopsided. So that she was just being pressed on that as I stopped listening, that uh, Police Scotland, and this is what really got the MSPs animated on the committee, as soon as Police Scotland took over, very much Alex Salmond's own point, uh, what business is it of untrained people at the Scottish Government to say, um, Police Scotland, you might like to run your investigation this way, and have you considered that? And they were asking, supposedly, um, you know, for the sake of argument questions, which... Uh, the cute people at Police Scotland quickly realised were actually uh, a disguised actual case and they, they tried to get Scottish Government to desist at that stage. So once again, we have a, con a confirmation that corrupt as Police Scotland may be and politically di directed at its senior ranks, it is nowhere near as corrupt as the people in Edinburgh. Um, so where does that bring us uh, with respect to legal advice? After very much foot dragging, the Deputy First Minister, uh, John Swinney, who may not be long for his post uh, Either And by the way, the Scottish Conservatives are now saying that Nicola Sturgeon should resign because it's clear to them 
that she misled the Scottish Parliament in this matter. Swinney did finally agree exceptionally to re release on the, the page I'm showing here the legal advice given to the Scottish Government before the criminal case when they were trying to drag out their contesting of, uh, of uh, Mr Salmond trying to clear his name in a judicial review first, which he did. And um, what's interesting here is that through the autumn of last year, it was clear, uh, sorry, the autumn of 2018, the, uh, the year in which uh, first these accusations surfaced in August and Mr Salmond immediately took a judicial review to try to clear his name. Uh, by October, so two months into this, the Scottish Government was realising at legal advice level that it had shaky uh, a shaky case, which is something they have denied because it would mean deliberate waste of taxpayers' money in fighting a doomed case and whatever, and possible misrepresenting of the matter to a judge and to their own lawyers. Well, the leaks, um, oh sorry, the, the, the publication uh, have now confirmed that the legal advice given to the Scottish Government by Mr Roddy Dunlop QC, their own um, uh, advocates, the Scottish Government's advocates, and they were responding of course to the JR initiated by Mr Salmond, is as of that day, 31st of October, uh, the QC for the Scottish Government defending against Salmond says, uh, you have just discussed with the Lord Advocate, I'm very concerned indeed about this. The Lord Advocate, of course, is the Chief Law Officer of the Scottish Government and is a Cabinet Minister as well as Head of Scottish Prosecutions. The Lord Advocate, says uh, Roddy Dunlop QC, acting for the Scottish Government, has suggested a short note setting out my concerns and this is now attached. I'm sorry to be sending this to you at all, let alone late at night on Halloween, but I'm afraid I see no other option. And there's more of this actually in the legal advice. So on the 11th of December, uh, in the release that's just come out yesterday, we see that the Lord Advocate was clear, uh, this is from the director, um, sorry, a, a redacted person at the Scottish Government going to the Director of Communications for Ministerial Support. Uh, the Lord Advocate was clear at a meeting in December then that there was no question of conceding, no question of saying, sorry, we were wrong about this. We concede that Mr Salmond uh, is right in this judicial review. They must press on. But the Lord Advocate stressed there the benefit that would accrue from a judicial finding. In other words, they wanted to uh, take the heat off themselves, as it were. So this does rather bear out what Mr Salmond said. We have one more disclosure from that uh, bunch of legal advice disclosures. This is pretty shocking. Um, the senior and junior councils acting for the Scottish Government as respondent in that pre-criminal proceeding, the judicial review, writing to their own clients, the Scottish Government, talk about the regrettable way in which they, they themselves have been given their own client, the Scottish Government's material. They have experienced extreme professional embarrassment as a result of being lied to, that's lawyer language for being lied to, assurances which we have given. Not on screen is that they even say that they might have to give up the case because they think their client, the Scottish Government, is acting in bad faith. For that they use the legal term, your case is in danger of becoming unstatable. And what else do the Senior and Junior Council for the Scottish Government say in December, as now disclosed? They say all of that is bad enough, you know, dragging their own lawyer's name through the mud and making fools of them. However, it pales beside the revelation in the course of this morning of two further documents, and they cannot understand why these documents were not made available to their own lawyers, the Scottish Government's own lawyers, long before now. Uh, so let's go on and see what else has come out of this. On the Scottish Parliament website, it's quite difficult to find, so I have put the breadcrumb tra trail on screen for anyone wishing to find where the committee's material are. Parliamentary business, committees, committee on the Scottish Government handling of harassment complaints, current business, written, event, uh, written evidence. Two overnight uh, additions are the result of what David Scott was reporting on Monday. As a masterstroke in closing, Mr Salmon said, why not just subpoena the material 
that you have not got out of others by asking my own lawyers to provide their copies. They'll be glad to do so. And Julie, that is what they have done. Mr. Kevin Pringle, who used to be the head of SNP Press Communications, if I remember correctly, and Duncan Hamilton QC, who is a former member of the Scottish Parliament and Mr. Salmon's own uh, QC or uh, uh, legal uh, representative in, in the trial. Now, what have they said? They have borne out exactly what Mr. Salmon said. So Mr. Ke Kevin Pringle, uh, has confirmed the crucial bits, which has been uh, so hotly contested, which is that when Salmon's then Chief of Staff, Jeff Aberdeen, went to Nicola Sturgeon's private home uh, outside Glasgow at the end of March 2018, there was detailed discussion uh, of this complaint forthcoming. Of course, Mrs Sturgeon has said she didn't know until Easter Monday, then the following week in April. And that, that, that's actually a name of one of the complainants, that's uh, they're usually called complainer in Scots, but here it's complainant's name, uh, was actually dropped. Uh, in, in rebutting this this morning, uh, Nicola Sturgeon has been quite brass-necked and said, no, no, um, it was Alex Salmond who let me know he knew about complainers' names. So she's, she's not conceding anything here. And also uh, Duncan uh, Hamilton, uh, Salmon's uh, actual lawyer, has said in uh, the other released material that he can confirm he was told the name of a complainant by Mr Aberdeen. In other words, Nicola Sturgeon uh, actually seems to have, the, the, the implication is, seems to have said, don't you know that so-and-so is about to complain about you? A very serious breach for anyone, let alone a head of a government and a political party. And he also goes on to say that Mr Salmond is correct, uh, that, that all of this was known on the 29th of March, before the uh, date when Mr. Mrs. Surgeon has sworn blinds to Parliament, she first knew about the accusations against Mrs. Mr. Salmon. This is the basis on which the Scottish opposition is now calling for Nicola Sturgeon to resign. But in all of this, this double-hatted figure, the Lord Advocate, who is the head of the, not the judiciary, but of the prosecution by the government, and also a cabinet minister and a party member of Mrs. Sturgeon's party, this is where it becomes untenable. Fraser Nelson of The Spectator reports that the Lord Advocate, during his appearance before this parliamentary committee, was saying, watch it, Sonny, basically, when he was being questioned, quote, the committee should not entertain any attack on the integrity of the Crown. He always keeps calling the Crown Office the Crown, which is actually Les Majeste, it's not the Crown, it's a, a branch of government, or the hardworking people who work for it. And as Fraser Nelson notes, Imagining, uh, imagine a Director of Public Prosecutions for England and Wales saying that in evidence to members of Parliament in Westminster. Unthinkable. And I think you have uh, a half-minute uh, video of the Lord Advocate getting pretty shirty um, with, uh, if I can remember, uh, yes, it was uh, Mrs Bailey, one of the members of the uh, Parliament in the committee, uh, shirt, getting shirty with him when she only pressed him very slightly on something. So let's have a listen to that. Um, so was it the case then that it was Mr. Kenny Donnelly um, was one of the officials involved along with the Crown agent, Mr. Harvey, and who signed the letter? Well, Mr. Donnelly, you, you describe him as an official. He is an extremely experienced professional prosecutor. Um, oh, absolutely. Will you let me finish? Will you let me finish, please, Miss Bailey? Brian, I wonder what you make of the body language and intonation there, because you're quite experienced in this kind of uh, uh, event when a legal bigwig gets put under unwanted pressure. Uh, I've got to use probably the inappropriate expression. I think he's crapping himself. And so this lady is asking a, um, a you know, perfectly reasonable question. And he, he, he's coming back with aggression because he's so frightened. That's my take on it.
but the arrogance yes, and just sorry sorry the arrogance that is there uh really powerful arrogance but he's a very frightened man david scott has been reporting in recent years that the scottish judiciary have this kind of you can't sack me arrogance toward politicians but it applies also to uh, a non-judiciary figure like the lord advocate who is let's remind ourselves a political man not uh, a judicial man although he is of course a, a queen's counsel mr wolf uh, the lord advocate now uh, i'll let you guess for a moment i've deliberately not identified the poster of this um who has posted this in sympathy with nicola sturgeon a hard-working caring individual being pushed to her limit princess diana mary queen of scots anyone threatening the high and mighty establishment is subject to this kind of behavior this is Alex Salmon being described here. The man that helped her reach her dream, apparently um, it's not public service, it's to reach your dream if you run a country, has helped destroy her. I, help he I hope he can sleep at night and all his unionist chums. That's the really worst accusation, according to the person who wrote this. Any guesses who wrote it? I can't guess who wrote it, but I can suggest that Dolly Parton could probably put it, uh, put it in song. Well, I'll uh, save you the suspense. It was written by Nicola Sturgeon's sister, whom we're deliberately not, not identifying because Scottish Twitter is, or, or social media generally, is a bear pit and we don't want to be responsible for uh, any hatefulness towards her. But it shows the kind of la-la land in which uh, Nicola Sturgeon and her woke supporters live. Uh, and she's been saying several times in her evidence this morning uh, that it was all about a response to the Me Too phenomenon and she'll never be apologetic for being a, a campaigning feminist. Very much like her mini-me, uh, Leslie Evans, who for how much longer, question mark, is head of the Scottish Civil Service, uh, because I've been putting up some material on my own playlist on my Eastern Approaches channel on YouTube. The Scotland playlist that people will find there quite easily now has got several items on it and on the, the mo one of the most recent ones I have described uh, Leslie Evans as Nicola Sturgeon's mini-me. Uh, there has been a complaint actually about how Nicola Sturgeon lashed out at a press conference last week supposedly about Covid response and uh, as David Scott reported on Monday questioned the Scottish jury's verdict, 13 verdicts actually, and when uh, the former deputy leader of the SNP Jim Sillers wrote to Leslie Evans, the head of the Scottish Civil Service, to complain that Nicola Sturgeon was well out of line here, you can guess who Leslie Evans passed that letter to and who, who, who it was that replied to um, Jim Sillers, I'm sure you can guess? No, you'll have to tell us. Nicola Sturgeon replied ah. saying i see you've complained to my underling about me so that material's up you can follow the the link from my youtube upload to find that uh, perhaps uh, just a, a in comment to that is that i i disagree with the fact that uh, the government in this case scottish government can re release material it's making something public because it has a duty to do that mm. but it redacts the names of the individuals who were communicating the whole point of making something public is that the public will know exactly what went on and that means you have to know who, who said it so uh, that information released but still with redactions in it which uh, prevent the public understanding what's really happening mm. well i think we're going to end on the subject of the Church of England and uh, we've got an article up on UK column it's Welby's Church of England 2021 trillions for gay agreed but peanuts for the parish paupers and uh, this is a result of our little bit of investigation which showed that incredibly uh, Justin Welby had been able to put together 
uh, with his international bankers a mere 10 trillion, 10 trillion pounds, which has now become uh, some 17 trillion. Uh, this was one of the infographics in the article pointing to the Church of England's own documentation on their environment programme and the red arrows pointing to the 10.1 trillion. Um, but uh, we've compared this, this massive amount of money uh, which he's been able to assemble for the save the world, save Mother Earth, for the fact that there isn't any money to repair the churches. And uh, in a section, you um, have been pretty detailed about what's been happening with money and why it hasn't been getting to the churches um, to repair roofs. And you start off here, Alex, with disenchantment. We're not alone in losing faith in the current duo of archbishops who oversee the Church of England's diocese. Uh, Dr. Reverend Sorry, Reverend Dr. Melvin Tinker of Hull, uh, the least church city in the land, has recently spoken about his decision to leave the Church of England. What's been going on here, Alex? This is uh, serious stuff happening inside the CV. That particular incident was big in the Anglican scene in the north of England. Uh, Hull is a large Yorkshire city, and uh, Dr. Tinker has a very uh, popular ministry and large congregation there. And uh, he actually found that, uh, he, well, he, it prompted his decision to leave the Church of England when he found that the man who was rewarded by being his new Archbishop, the Archbishop of York, was a man, Dr. Stephen Cottrell, or Reverend Stephen Cottrell, I think, who in his previous role as a, as a plain old bishop uh, had told Anglicans, if you don't like the mermaid charity coming into an Anglican school and telling people how to change sex, then get out of the Church of England. You know, a kind of behaviour that you would never expect of any pastoral relationship and utterly new to the Church of England. And if people go just a little below that midpoint of the article, uh, the next subheader after disenchantment is the long subheader uh, asset stripped Anglicanism. And you have the end of that bit there. Uh, well, the, excuse me, the one I took out was this, where you've got a key insight. The key insight here is that the greatest money power is that of the little people, as long as you can aggregate it. To do that, you have to exert a pseudo-legal right to control their assets from the centre by raking it in before doling it back out, pretending that this constitutes accountability. So you're describing here how the Church of England is dealing with money. Yes, and it's the, the key insight is that the chaps like, uh, well, Welby himself, who's got a background in the city, I'm not suggesting impropriety on his part, but chaps with a background in the city of the kind that Mike often reports on when they are privatising the estate of the publicly owned Ministry of Defence land, for example, uh, or doing various similar things to the National Health Service and uh, utilities like the railways, they will often use the same techniques uh, as this. And uh, parishes, uh, usually run in Anglicanism by... Um, a PCC, a parish church council, uh, are often at a loss as to know what is going on. And if they're told, well, you really should send us the money that you have locally and then we'll send you back what we think you're, you're due. Many people in the last generation or two have been like sheep to the slaughter there, uh, and or at least sheep to the shearing, should I say, uh, and haven't said, no, actually, we have an independent uh, right to exist at law in theology and in church tradition and in canon law, uh, independent of the diocese. Uh, but that that's, that mistake has has been increasingly committed, and I think you have something more particular to say about um, uh, an, an individual Anglican churchgoer worried about the state of her roof, which I address at the end of the article. 
Uh, well, this is uh, a paragraph that I thought was particularly put pertinent. In such circumstances, those wishing to asset strip the church need only bring about a situation where the centre controls the assets, de facto at least as much as possible at law also, but where the congregations hold the liabilities, their obligations to pay their contributions to central church coffers, known as the parish share. Once the locals' money has been through the till centrally, you have converted it into a control mechanism. This is not the historic canon law position of who owns congregations' funds. The centre was always meant to be there for administration as a service, not for collection demanded with menaces. And uh, yes, in the last few days, I've had a, an individual talking to me about a church that needs a lot of repairs to the roof, but there is no money to do this. And essentially the church congregation has been brushed away by the Central Church of England ad administration. But as much money as is necessary for Gaia. So the question then is, uh, well, the church can't be a Christian church anymore. Uh, well, we end our article by asking some questions about that. So we're going to encourage people to read the article. And of course, if you've got connections with the Church of England, please share it. Alex. Uh, very quickly, Alex, because we're right out of time. Yes. Um, practical advice for anyone, and I know there's many viewers who find this in their local parish if they're Anglican churchgoers. If you want to tackle this, the one thing you do is if you're on the PCC, you ask it yourself or you get someone on the PCC to ask it for you. Can we have adjusted accounts. We will not accept a single balance sheet. We demand balances with adjusted accounts where the end of year balance from one year is tied over in, or tied into the opening balance for the next. Uh, the other thing you do is make sure that any funds that the parish uh, administers are not being sent to the centre and you insist that whatever the fund is called English trust law should operate and get legal advice to that, uh, that uh, effect. Finally, regarding the Charity Commission for England and Wales, which seems to have the position mosques are always suspicious and the C of E is always legit, um, you can put pressure on the Charity Commission by asking them in numbers why it is that they are still allow this unique loophole to the Church of England to audit its own accounts, which we're told now is a terrorist level threat if a mosque does it. Uh, right. Uh, well, a lot more to be said on that. Thank yes. you very much, uh, Alex. Incredible times. I'd like to just end by saying that uh, um, funeral that I attended on, um, sorry, I'm losing Monday. track of my days, Monday now. Thank you, Mike. Uh, for, for Derek By, Joan By has asked that uh, people who wanted to make a donation, uh, a charitable donation or a donation in our case would uh, that the money should come to the UK column. And I thought that was a very generous um, request by Joan By, which I wanted to recognise publicly. Um, very sad, a lot more to say on that particular case. Mm. Thanks for joining us today. We'll continue to report what's happening in UK and beyond. And we'll be back in 10 minutes if you're on the UK column website. Uh, where there's a chunk of the news still to come, Indeed. I think. <laughs> All right, join us then. Bye-bye.